yo, yo, I am Brad Rickle, and this is the Brad Rickle Brief. On today's show, we are talking about optimism. Most recently, I've read Matt Ridley's books, The Rational Optimist and How Innovation Works. And by the title of the former, you're clever to understand that this is where the episode is coming from. I don't know what it is about pessimism, but it's much stronger of a force than optimism. There's something about being negative that really blows our skirts up, and I'm not quite sure what it is. There have been some social psychology experiments done that show us that people bond over negative experiences and negative sentiments over positive ones. At first, this statement may seem paradoxical in that you're thinking, well, that's other people, that's not me. I'm a positive person. But if you really reflect on your past conversations you've had, in particular, maybe you're in a group setting with people you don't know or are not all that familiar with, you may find that you bonded more easily or thought more favorably of people when the conversations were negative or pessimistic. Let's just say gossiping about somebody else. That's a pretty common thing. And it's fair to say that I've had my fair share of conversations like that in my life. It's easier. For just some reason, it's just easier to shit talk than to be positive about something. I don't know why. This is including even recognizing when it's a terrible habit to have. And maybe it's not easy to recognize in ourselves, but you can absolutely think of a person that every time you talk to them, they're gossiping about other people or they're just being negative on life in general. But this high regard that people have for negativity is not only for conversations for people at the bar, people you barely know. People are drawn to negative news stories over positive ones. Just watch the news. And there's a lot of information out there that recently with the Facebook whistleblower case that the Facebook algorithms, they're geared to promote negative messages because negativity garners more attention in the form of follow-on comments, increased conversation, sharing. Facebook figured this out. And I say all that to ask, are we foundationally a negative group of people? Is it just in our genes? It might have something to do with what social psychologists refer to as loss aversion. And what does that mean? It means that humans are programmed to dislike losing more than they like gaining. Daniel Kahneman, very famous social psychologist, understood this phenomenon, did some experiments, and he came to the conclusion that, that people roughly dislike losing about two times as much as they like gaining something. So as an example, people dislike losing $10 about two times as much as gaining $10. But being negative, being pessimistic, there is an upside to it. Because if we lose enough in life, if we don't recognize the dangers in life, life can end. It's that kind of serious game. And maybe that's why it's easier to focus on pessimism or negativity than optimism. Maybe it's that simple. But I have been doing a lot of talking on this subject lately with friends and family just regarding optimism and how the world is becoming a better place because it's so easy to fall into conversations that are just negative in tone or pessimistic. Because when you watch the news, or you're on Facebook or on Twitter, it's easy to believe that the world is becoming a worse place. Everything seems to be trending that direction. But I've had some pretty substantial conversations on this recently, and my views changed as well. And a few months ago when I read these Matt Ridley books, the rational optimist, and how innovation work were huge influencers in that regard. 
Basically, these are similar books written about a decade apart. It goes from 2008-2009 for The Rational Optimist to How Innovation Works in 2020. And I was surprised. I read these in reverse order. I read How Innovation Works first. Then I read The Rational Optimist. And for those who haven't read the books, you can combine them into one. It's basically one theme running through the two books to make a robust point that the world is becoming a better place continuously. And I was surprised in preparation for this episode, I did a little bit of research and looked up some reviews. And this is these are not well-reviewed books. In particular, Goodreads, most of the users on there just kind of trash this book as terrible. And then Bill Gates really had a big issue with this book saying that aid is better than innovation or something to that effect. It just surprised me because I really enjoyed thinking about these subjects from a different position. And these books were impactful to me in a few ways. Firstly, doomsday predictions have always been going on because there is some cachet. If you can pull off a prediction of something negative happening in the future and it does occur, people get a lot of cachet for that. You see it in the stock market a lot. There are perma bears, people that are saying in the next few months, the market's going to tank. And they'll say that every few months for years on end until they're proven right. And when they're proven right, because the market does go down from time to time, they say, see, look at that. So they had 50 wrong predictions in a row. Then they had a right one and said, hey, look at me. I, I did it. But doomsday predictions have really never quite measured up. And it hasn't stopped people talking about the end of days. Matt Ridley used a very good point in the late 1700s. An English economist by the name of Thomas Mathis predicted the world population would exceed food supply and the population would need to decrease in order to maintain. Simply saying the population was getting too big and we couldn't feed everybody. And in 1800, from a quick Google search, the world population had around a billion people which was substantially more than it was 100 years before that. Seems logical to say, hey, our resources cannot feed this ever-growing, expanding, seemingly at a geometric rate population. There's just a finite amount of food. That was a pessimistic prediction. In the late 1960s, Dr. Robert Ehrlich, a Stanford professor, famously wrote a book called The Population Bomb, and he did a couple of revisions on this, in which he described a similar prediction, but put a timestamp on it saying in the 70s, the earth was going to be so overpopulated, it faced mass starvation and famine. He put a 10-year timestamp on it, spectacularly wrong. In particular, he said, large countries with rising populations like India were in particular trouble, that they wouldn't be able to feed themselves and they didn't have the resources to import food and other resources in from somewhere else. But then guess what happens? Shortly before this prediction, in the background, a farmer turned plant pathologist, Dr. Norman Borlaug, you might have heard about him before, he was crossbreeding thousands of species of wheats down in Mexico, and he developed a high-yielding, free-thrashing, disease-resistant dwarf wheat. It was incredible. That innovation by Dr. Borlaug single-handedly averted the mass extinction event predicted by Dr. Ehrlich. And the population in 1960 was around 3 billion. So the world population was about three times as large as when Mathis 
wrongly predicted the famine and starvation events. And the famine events never occurred like Dr. Ehrlich predicted in the 1970s. Today, the world population is almost 8 billion. Moreover, because of innovation and technology, we are using less land and feed drastically more people. This is the incredible part. And it's very popular today to talk about food production, sustainability. Those are, those are good terms to throw around. But these conversations typically have a lot more nuance to them, not just about sustainable farming. There's positives and there's negatives. As an example, there are people who believe that using nitrogen fertilizer, a technique of pulling nitrogen out of the atmosphere that was created in the early 1900s, is a bad thing. It can cause algae blooms and the runoff, can pollute the water, and because humans are so dependent on it, that it is leaving the soil depleted because we can grow corn on the same acres for 50 years in a row if we just use enough fertilizer, as an example. But the optimistic side of it, the more nuanced, tougher conversation, is recognizing that pulling nitrogen out of the atmosphere has also allowed us to use less land that's required to grow the same amount of food. And what do I mean? If you're not using nitrogen fertilizer that you're pulling out of the atmosphere, you likely need to use manure from animals to supplement the soil. And animals, they need space to live and they need space to eat, to graze. Even if you're feeding them in locked up cages, you're still going to need land to grow the food that they're going to eat. This is drastically more land than is needed for the animals and their food than pulling nitrogen out of the air. This land that otherwise would be used for for growing food for the animals or letting them graze can now revert back to wilderness and support wildlife or be put to some other productive use like housing. So when people talk to me about sustainable farming practices now, I like to bring up this point because it brings in more perspective of the conversation of, is it better to use more land to feed the same amount of people or is it better to let that land go back to wilderness where it can support wildlife? Personally, I think it's an incredible accomplishment that we're able to pull something like nitrogen out of the atmosphere, that we're able to figure it out and innovate, and that we're able to use it. Because we use less land now for agriculture than we did 70 years ago, and we have a larger population. It's an optimistic outlook. We need to keep innovating in those types of ways so the population can keep growing, because I think, generally speaking, that's a good thing. There might be some of you out there saying, well, the population needs to shrink, but I'm guessing you're not going to volunteer for the cause, if you know what I mean. I know me personally, I want my family to grow, so I don't know who I would sign up for population reduction. We can innovate our way to a better future because there's no ceiling to innovation. This is a critical point that he keeps talking over and over again. And there's another author, David Deutsch, who in the beginning of Affinity talks about the same thing, that innovation, we are just at the beginning of infinity when it comes to innovation and how we can keep making the world, or maybe in the future, the worlds better and better and better. It's easy to see how things get worse simply by taking what you know today and trend it downwards. But thinking about the endless possibilities of the future, it's tougher. There's a saying in writing that it's easier to create than it is to edit. That's what pessimism is. It edits from what you currently know today. Optimism is creation. 
And it's a much tougher thought experiment. And this is the tough part about optimism. We look back on the history of our world and we see the drastic improvement in our society over the last hundreds of years. And then we turn around in the next sentence and say, yes, the world has gotten better for the last 5,000 years, but I can see now that it's going to be getting worse from here on out. That doesn't make any sense to me, even today. And I pulled up an article today from the United Nations saying that they're predicting worldwide famine based on current food production. They're not getting the point that we're continuing to innovate. And while this is slightly off topic, I've been talking a decent amount with people just regarding my thoughts on China. And since China is the United States' newest, best enemy, about my thoughts on China. China is world-class at stealing our technology. They are embedded in every part of the United States academic system. They're all over the PhD programs. They're able to get hands on our technology blueprints, and they're able to get it back to China. I think they're incredible like that. I think they have a huge army, but there's a difference between stealing our innovations and being an innovator. As an example, and this is pretty well known, that China has successfully made aircraft carriers. They're able to reverse engineer an old aircraft carrier. I think they got it from Russia, and they now have aircraft carriers. That's a scary thing. Aircraft carriers are an awesome technology. Guess what they can't do? They can't land planes on them. So there's some things you just can't steal when it comes to innovation. Some things you have to learn and pass on. There is no better military in the world than the United States because of things like that, because of our history. We live in a world now where we shouldn't think and put energy towards trying to protect innovation and technology that we've already created. Instead, we should be putting that energy into innovating new technology. Innovation is the way to a better future. There was a question I asked Brett a few months ago just regarding how much progress has actually been made in the United States and the world over the last hundreds of years. I asked him, would you rather be the richest person in the 1850s, let's say Cornelius Vanderbilt, or a lower middle-class person in the United States today? And Brett, to his credit, he sat there and thoughtfully pondered that question, and he said, I'd rather be lower middle-class today. And I think that's the correct answer. At least that's a resounding yes for me. I'd rather be poor today than the richest person in 1850. Because all of that wealth for Vanderbilt, he couldn't buy electricity or air conditioning, indoor plumbing, vaccines, the internet. These are all things that are pretty readily available to most Americans today. Not all. And this conversation is not the same conversation as there's not room for improvement because there is. This conversation is the acknowledgement that things have gotten better, not worse, over our history. And it's romantic to look back and say, oh, things were better at a different time in history. But when you look at it, is there any other time or place that you'd rather be born or live? And with the power of innovation, things will keep getting better. That's not to say we shouldn't worry about problems. We absolutely should. That's how innovation works. We need to focus on problems. But to know that our ability to innovate will always outpace those problems is a key thing when looking at future events. Climate change is a big deal. There are smart people in this world that are working on this problem. Thankfully, the incentives should be in place for them 
to innovate our way out of it. There's cool technology like huge filters pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere and we can bury it underground. I don't know if that's going to be the viable technology that solves it or helps us. I don't know, but there's going to be something. Water shortage seems to be a lurking problem as well, but we already have the technology to desalinate water and the ocean makes up a huge percentage of the earth. So we have access to this water that we know how to make drinkable. The problem is the energy it needs to be able to convert and desalinate. So this is more of an energy problem all of a sudden, not a water problem. And I think the energy problem can be solved as well. There are plenty of energy options, such as nuclear, that we could potentially use. And one of the things I'm really excited about in the future is our attempts, when I say our, the United States attempts, maybe in particular Elon Musk, wanting to get a base on the moon and colonize Mars. I know NASA is really looking at this as well. I believe that the innovations that will be needed to make those two goals possible will translate directly to a better quality of life here on planet Earth. Innovation propagates. That's what it does. And technology is deflationary. And with the internet, it's never been so easy for individuals to exchange ideas. And this exchange of ideas and information is what fuels innovation. I think we're at the early stages of how much innovation people on Earth can do. And it seems to be geometrically increasing. We're innovating much more than we were hundreds of years ago. They were, in turn, innovating much more than people thousands of years before them. And I talk about this on the show today because I've been trying to actively reframe my position when it comes to conversations like this because it's still so easy to sit down with somebody and talk about how the public schools are worse than they used to be or politicians are worse than they used to be or things are just out of control in society, worse than I could ever remember. And when I have conversations like that with people and these conversations go negative or pessimistic, I try to think and search for the optimistic themes and highlight them. But it's a hard skill and one that I'm still trying to cultivate. It's reasonable that you think of yourself as an optimistic person. We all do. But next time you're in a conversation that involves the world going to shit, try to talk about the other side of it. Talk about how the world is becoming a better place. See how you feel. See how the other person or people in the conversation feel about that. It might be a totally different experience. And I'll end on this. As Matt Ridley wrote, it's rational to be an optimist because you have thousands of years of evidence to get to that conclusion. All right, folks, that is it. Quick little solo show for everybody today. Thank you for listening. If you have any comments or feedback, if you want to be a guest on the show, please email me at bradricklebrief at gmail.com or you can find me on Twitter at bradrickle. Music, as always, is provided by James Spensley. Dude knows how to shred. See you later. I'm out.